In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. Free me from the trap that is set for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Redeem me, O Lord, the God of truth. I hate those who cling to worthless idols. I trust in the Lord. I'll be glad and rejoice in your love. For you saw my affliction and knew the anguish of my soul. You have not handed me over to the enemy, but have set my feet in a spacious place. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. My soul and my body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction and my bones grow weak. Because of all my enemies, I'm the utter contempt of my neighbors. I'm a dread to my friends. Those who see me on the street flee from me. I'm forgotten by them as though I were dead. I've become like broken pottery. For I hear the slander of many. There is terror on every side. They conspire against me and plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from my enemies and from those who pursue me. Let your face shine on your servant. Save me in your unfailing love. Let me not be put to shame, O Lord, for I have cried out to you. But let the wicked be put to shame and lie silent in the grave. Let their lying lips be silent, for with pride and contempt they speak arrogantly against the righteous. How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you bestow in the sight of men, on those who take refuge in you. In the shelter of your presence you hide them from the intrigues of men. In your dwelling you keep them safe from accusing tongues. Praise be to the Lord, for he showed his wonderful love to me when I was in a besieged city. In my alarm I said, I'm cut off from your sight. Yet you heard my cry for mercy when I called to you for help. Love the Lord, all his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but the proud he pays back in full. Be strong and take heart, all you who hope in the Lord. Your turn, Carl, to come up here. I thought I might just leave it for you, Fred. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> um, well, it's, uh, it's great to be here again, isn't it? And uh, welcome if you're visiting. Uh, my name is Carl, I'm the pastor here. Uh, and uh, and you've, you've joined us uh, in the middle of this series on Psalms as we uh, lead up to Easter and uh, as we think about what it means that Jesus died on the cross, we've been looking at a number of psalms, as Fred said. Uh, last week we had uh, Psalm 41 uh, and we, we saw how that psalm was fulfilled uh, when, when Judas betrayed Jesus. Uh, and this week we're looking at Psalm 31. Uh, and what's great, I think, about Psalm 31 is, is that it gives us 
a glimpse of what Jesus went through on the cross. What, what was Jesus thinking? What was he feeling as he suffered uh, all that he went through on the cross? What, what were his emotions, I suppose? As Fred said, they're words that Jesus used on the cross. Uh, you might have picked up on that as we, as we read through. But for those who don't know, let's just quickly turn to Luke 23, uh, to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, verse 23. I'll just uh, quickly read where it is that Jesus uses those words. Just to, just to give us a bit of a frame of reference, I suppose, as we, as we go through this psalm. There in Luke 23, verse 44, Luke writes, It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. When Jesus used those words from verse 5 on the cross, into your hands, I commit my spirit. He was more than just quoting a few words. He was more than just saying, verse 5 is what I want you to think about. He was identifying with this whole psalm and he was identifying with all that David had written. This psalm, if you like, resonated with his experience and he used it to express to us what was going on. So this morning as we go through Psalm uh, 31, what we're going to do is really just look at the five key emotions, I suppose, that David expressed in the psalm when he first wrote it and uh, five emotions which Jesus identified with as he hung on the cross. And, and as we do that, we're going to try and kind of tap into that, I suppose, and try and understand how, how that helps us. Maybe uh, the most prominent emotion in this psalm is that of anguish. Uh, David, as he wrote this psalm, was, was pretty distressed and that comes out most clearly in verses 19 to 13. David says, Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and body with grief. My life is consumed with anguish and my years by groaning. My, my strength fails because of affliction and my bones grow weak. Because of all my enemies, I am the utter contempt of my neighbours. I am a dread to my friends. Those who, who see me on the street flee from me. I'm not sure about you, but uh, I don't know that I've ever experienced that, that kind of distress. Uh, you know, there are times in my life and, and probably times in your life as well where, you know, times where you've felt pretty bad. I mean, there's been times in my life where, you know, sleepless nights, you know, times where I felt weak with grief, times where I, I felt as though I had no strength to kind of continue on. But I don't know that I could say, in all honesty, that I've ever been in a situation where my enemies have been speaking against me at every turn and they've, 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 there's been this enormous conspiracy to try and undo me. I don't know that things have ever been that bad. Uh, 
A few years ago, I, uh, I knew a guy uh, from Iran. He'd come from Iran as a Christian and he'd moved to Australia to try and find uh, asylum. Uh, he was fleeing his home country, uh, but unfortunately he wasn't able to stay. He, he was denied as, uh, asylum by the immigration department and he was sent back to Iran. When he went back to Iran, his wife and his family uh, rejected him. Uh, they were were not Christians, they were still Muslims. Uh, He couldn't get a job because he was a Christian. He was restricted by the government on where he could live. Uh, He's not allowed to have any contact with foreigners who come to the country because they might be Christians. Uh, You know, his life basically, you know, kind of ended in a way, didn't it really, when he went back. He was a man like that, I think, can really relate with the depths that, that David was experiencing in this psalm. Well, some of us might have experienced things like that. I suspect John and Amira uh, would have known some pretty dark times, darker probably than any of the rest of us have ever uh, experienced. But wherever we find ourselves on the, on the spectrum between you know, just run-of-the-mill ordinary anguish and the kind of anguish that David is talking about, wherever we find ourselves on that spectrum, we still know what it's like to be under siege. Uh, we still know what it's like to be in distress. And wherever we are on that spectrum, Psalm 31 provides a model for us on how to express our hurt to God. One of the great blessings, really, of the Christian life is just being able to do that, isn't it? It's just being able to come to God and to say, God, you know what? My life is totally messed up. I'm, just, I'm falling to pieces here, God. You've got to help me. Isn't it a tremendous blessing just to be able to go to God and to say, Life is messed up. I'm messed up. I need your help. It's, it's not a great blessing just because it helps us to get things off our chest. You know, it's not some kind of you know, empty catharsis, you know, uh, you know, just getting it out there. I've just got to get it out there. Uh, it, it's, it's useful and it's powerful and it's effective because God is powerful and effective. That's why it's good to do. It's good to be able to express it to God because God loves to help the weak and, and the helpless. It's comforting because God is a God who helps us in our times of trouble. That's what Jesus knew when he hung on the cross, when he went through all that misery and pain and anguish. He knew that his father was the only one who could help him. And so he took that opportunity to cry out to God and to say, God, I need your help. And yet, even though Jesus used this psalm, even though he knew that pain and anguish, there's something infinitely worse, isn't there, about what he experienced compared to what we experience. It's infinitely worse, really, compared to what David experienced as well. And that thought, I think, opens up to us the second great emotion in this psalm. The first great sentiment and emotion was, was anguish. The second is alarm. At the end of verse 22, David says, In my alarm I said, I am cut off from your sight. David's worst fear in all this anguish and all this opposition, his worst fear was being cut off by God. There's something, there's something really sinister, in other words, at the bottom of all these 
of all these fears and that fear is being hated by God. There's something immensely telling in that, I think. You see, I don't, I don't think that most people are afraid of death. There are times, uh, aren't there, when death comes into focus. Uh, it might be the sudden death uh, of someone that you know. Uh, it might be the death of, a sudden death of a friend. And sudden deaths are confronting. Why is that? C.S. Lewis, uh, during the Second World War, gave some thought to why uh, to why death was confronting, or, or sorry, why war was confronting. He asked, what is it about war which is so confronting? And he said, well, it's not that war changes how many people die. 100% of people still die in war, you know, as, as in the rest of the time. It's always the same odds. Still 100% of people die. What's What's different about war, what's challenging about war is that it puts death in our face. It, it, it brings death into focus so that we can't ignore it. There are so many things, uh, aren't there, in life which, which bring death into focus and sudden, sudden deaths and sudden illness is one of those things. But at the end of the day, I don't think it's death which people are afraid of. I think what's most terrifying of all to most people is not death but the uncertainty of what's after death. It's the fear of judgement. It's the fear even for Christian people, even for people in the church. What is the great fear? The fear is not knowing how God will receive them on the other side. Of course some people have uh, so buried uh, the thoughts, thoughts about death and, and, and about judgement uh, and about meeting God, they've buried those things so far down in their psyche that, uh, that, that it never comes to, the mind, it comes to their mind. They, they, they don't allow it to come into their mind. But whether you feel that kind of angst or not, that's the reality. The reality is that death will come and some will face judgment and some will receive life. But as we view that kind of reality, I suppose, through the lens of the cross, as we think about this psalm and David's great fear of being cut off from God, as we view that through the lens of the cross, an amazing transformation takes place. You see, as Jesus hung on the cross, his greatest fear too was being cut off from God. His greatest fear was being forsaken by God, suffering the eternal wrath of God, not because he was a sinner, but because that was the price of saving sinners. That was the price of being a saviour. And so as Jesus hung on the cross, he could identify with this psalm and say, I am cut off from you, God. In my alarm, I said, I am cut off from you. But here is the great irony. Here is the great miracle of the cross where David feared that and it didn't come true. Jesus feared it and it did. David's worst fear was being cut off from God, but he wasn't. And Jesus' worst fear was being cut off from God, and he was. I think sometimes uh, we want to talk about the cross, we want to talk about what Jesus did on the cross, uh, we, want to, we want to talk about what Jesus went through to try and get a glimpse of how bad it was. You know, we want to try and feel the emotion you know, the existential angst of, of the cross. 
We want to feel the weight of it. But you know what? We can't. And that's the blessing, isn't it? Why, why would you want to? Why is it madness to want to feel the weight of what Jesus went through? Because the whole reason that he did it was so that we would never have to. David experienced awful things. We experience awful things. But none of that comes even close to what Jesus went through when he was cut off from God, judged by God, rejected by God. He did all that so that we would never have to. David's worst fear never came true because Jesus was cut off for him. Our worst fear will never come true either if we trust in Jesus because he was cut off so that we might never be. And so that's really the first uh, two emotions that this psalm uh, plays out for us. is anguish and alarm. Uh, and the third emotion, and, and in some ways the most important emotion or the most important sentiment, is trust. You know, you can have all the anguish and all the alarm in the world, but that does, does you no good if you don't add to that trust. Verse 14 and verse 15 depict uh, David's trust very clearly. He writes this, But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from my enemies and from those who pursue me. There's those words too that Jesus used on the cross. They're an amazing expression of trust. Verse 5, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Redeem me, O Lord, the God of truth. What David is showing is really foundational to Christianity. He's showing real, true, biblical faith. He's, he's showing us what it looks like. The world is falling apart. David is falling apart. What does he do? He comes to the point where he says, you know what, life is messed up, but you're my God. I trust you. I'm, I, you know, I'm going to pieces here, God, but I'm putting my life in your hands and I know that you're good and you're kind and you're merciful. I trust that you're going to look after me. So this psalm gives us a picture of the nature of true biblical faith, but, but it, it, it goes sort of further, I guess, in that picture. Look at, for instance, verse 2. Verse 2, uh, David says, Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge. Uh, a strong fortress to save me. Uh, or, or maybe verse 4, free me from the trap that is set for me, for you are my refuge. See, David is, is, is saying two things here. He's saying both, God, I trust you, right? And he's saying, God, please help me. God, I trust you. God, please help me. What's going on? I don't understand. You don't seem to be saving me. Please help me. How, how are those two things go together. What this psalm shows us is so much of the Bible shows us is that true biblical faith isn't the kind of isn't a kind of feeling of one hundred percent certainty. It's not it's not like kind of an intellectual exercise where what you have to do is repeat the mantra until there is absolutely no doubt in your mind. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith isn't an intellectual exercise. 
What biblical faith is, is dealing with distress and anguish and even doubt, dealing with those things by dealing with God. Dealing with distress and anguish and even doubt by calling out to God and saying, God, I'm falling to pieces here. You've got to help me. I trust you. That's biblical faith. It's, 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 it's faith which deals with God. Unbelief, on the other hand, it, that doesn't deal with God. Unbelief says things like, I'm going to deal with this myself, I don't need God. Unbelief never even thinks of God, never even thinks of turning to God. Unbelief says maybe even, look, I'm going to sort this out myself, when I, once I've got everything together I'm going to go back and then I'll go back to God. Unbelief might even say, this God that, I, that I've been trusting is no God at all. You know, my turns its back on God. David uh, talks about that in verse 6, about those characteristics of unbelief. He says, I hate those who cling to worthless idols. I trust in the Lord. He's just had this amazing statement of faith. Into your hands I commit my spirit, God. And then he looks at the other side, what other people are doing. What are they doing? They're trusting in worthless idols. David's enemies don't trust God. They don't deal with God. They've thrown their lot in behind something else something else besides God. At the end of the day, the important thing is though that David can say, I trust you God. I'm crying out to you because I trust you. I haven't got it figured out. I don't know how it's going to work but I know that you're good and kind and I know that you're faithful. I got an email uh, this week from uh, a church that I used to be a part of and a family in that church, their child just had an operation to remove a tumour. And the tumour, it turns out, they found out this week, is cancerous. Uh, this kid's not more than probably seven or eight. Uh, and he's been diagnosed with a cancerous tumour and the cancer spread to the lungs. I think it would be hard in that situation, wouldn't it, to say, I trust you, God. I trust that you know what's going on. And yet the reality is it's just as important as ever, isn't it, to say that? To be able to say, I trust you, God. Everything's falling to pieces. I don't know how it's going to work out and I'm really hurting, but I trust you. Jesus was faced with the wrath of his own father for our sake. He faced separation from his father he didn't deserve an ounce of what he got and yet he could say, I trust you. I trust that you're going to do right. I trust you that whatever happens, it's going to be good. And that trust was vindicated. That's the most remarkable thing, isn't it? That trust that Jesus displayed was vindicated three days later, wasn't it? I'm cut off from your sight. No, you're not. Three days he was raised from the dead. And 40 days after that he was reunited with his father. And our trust will be vindicated. 
Our trust might not be vindicated today. We might not get the answer that we want today. God might not say, here you go, your child is healed. God might not say, your family, which is falling to pieces, is back together. But one day, our trust will be vindicated, won't it? On the other side of the valley of the shadow of death. And those of us who hope in Christ can say, what, whatever happens, God, whatever's going on now, I trust that you'll never cut me off. I, I trust that what happened to Jesus will never happen to me. Because that's why he did it. So he's seen anguish and alarm and trust. And I think we can understand those sentiments, can't we? But there's one other sentiment in this psalm which is much harder for us to come to terms with. And that sentiment is hatred. Look at verse 6. We've already read it before. I hate those who cling to worthless idols. Or verse 17 and 18. Let me not be put to shame, O Lord, for I I have cried out to you, but let the wicked be put to shame and lie silent in the grave. Let their lying lips be silenced. With pride and contempt they speak arrogantly against the righteous. What do we do with that? What do we do with those kinds of sentiments? I think it helps in just trying to get our mind around those kinds of things. It helps to realise that, you know, if you were to go through and read the first 40 Psalms, for instance, in the book of Psalms, you would come over lots of times these similar kinds of statements. Statements about Uh, God hating those who do evil, God judging them, God cutting them off. You see, it's not just this one psalm, it's not just that you get to Psalm 31 and all of a sudden there it is, unexpectedly. It's a theme tune really through certainly uh, the first 40 psalms and through the whole book of psalms. So what do we do with this stuff? I think what we have to do with this stuff is to realise that there is no getting away from the reality that ultimate deliverance involves the removal of evil. Ultimate deliverance involves ultimate judgment. They're two sides of the same coin. In that sense, these words of hatred in this psalm are actually honest words. They're honest words which set the true reality of God's judgment alongside God's mercy. Uh, We're fond of the expression often, I think, in Christian circles, aren't we? God loves the sinner but hates the sin. But in some ways that's that's far too simplistic. In some ways it's more complicated than that. Uh, God loves repentant sinners. Yes, that's true. God loves those who turn from sin and and, and, and love Jesus. But there's also a truth in the fact that God is angry with unrepentant sinners. God is, in fact furious at the fact that they refuse to receive his mercy. And yet at the same time, he loves them and wants them to turn from uh, their rebellion and find life. This morning in, uh, uh, in the prayer meeting, uh, we read through uh, a bit of Matthew 23. Uh, and in Matthew 23, Jesus sets out woe after woe after woe against the Pharisees. He says, you, you're wicked, you, you know, you're, leading, you're like the blind leading the blind. And at the end of that, 
He looks on Jerusalem and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how, how I long to gather you under my arms. But you would not have it. Somehow Jesus manages to hold both together. We do that all the time, don't we? We, uh, we hold conflicting emotions together. We can hold love and anger together, can't we? You know, the, the wife uh, whose husband cheats on her can hold together love and anger. Often there's a deep desire for justice and for, and for vindication and, strangely enough, also a deep desire for reconciliation. The two emotions are not complete opposites and neither are they in God. There's a sense in which I think that the unrepentant are like people sitting on a fence who have, who under both the love and the, and the wrath of God and, and at the end of the day things will go either one way or the other. Absolute wrath and judgement or absolute love and mercy. In the final analysis, the point, though, is this. David's words are words of warning. In the cross, God's mercy and judgment came together in the most amazing way. But for those who reject Jesus, the ultimate prospect is judgment. How much worse is it how much worse is the wrath of God against those who reject his son? That's what the book of Hebrews is, is all about. It's all about how much worse is the judgment of God on those who reject Jesus after God has punished his own son so that the world might be reconciled to him. How much worse is the condition of those who reject Jesus and refuse to repent and submit to him? How much worse is it when he's laid down his life for sinners? So in this psalm, in the, in the grace of God on the cross, I, I don't think there's any way of getting away from the fact that in the grace of God on the cross there is a sense of threat and judgement for those who don't receive the mercy and judgement brought together in the most amazing way in Jesus' death. So we've seen uh, in this psalm alarm, uh, anguish, trust and anger and just very briefly uh, I want to just pick up on how this psalm ends uh, and the last emotion that this psalm ends with is in verse 19 to the end David unleashes this string of praise. How great is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you. Uh, verse 21, praise be to the Lord for he showed his wonderful love to me when I was in a besieged city. God has kept David safe uh, and so he now turns to God with praise. It's the fitting conclusion. It's the fitting response. This psalm gives us lots of reasons for praise, doesn't it? As we've looked at it we've, uh, through the lens of the cross, we've, we've seen what Jesus has done. We've seen how he took up our anguish and our alarm. He took that on himself to, to, so that we would be rescued from that. Jesus took on himself our greatest nightmare that is being cut off from God he took it on so that we would never experience it we've seen haven't we how our trust 
in Jesus will one day be vindicated. It's been vindicated already in Jesus' resurrection from the dead and one day our trust will be vindicated too in our own resurrection from the dead. There's so much, isn't there, to praise God for. And yet, and yet, we find it so difficult, don't we? We're not really very good at praise. It's, it's, it's not natural. I think part of the reason is that we get so easily bored of things. Not just the gospel, we get bored of life. We get, we get bored of good things in life. I think it's, uh, it's so easy to take people for granted. Uh, I, think, I find it easy to take my family for granted. Uh, you know, but if I stop and if I think... If I think about all that they've done over the years to help me out, if I think about all the wonderful things that they've achieved in their lives over the years, if I stop and I think about it, slowly I find myself thankful and I find a growing sense of love and appreciation. Isn't that, isn't that true? When you stop and you think about it and, and, you, and when you reflect on it, you find that love and thankfulness grows. You see, it takes time to be thankful. It takes time to reflect and the busyness of our lives makes that difficult. As it is with the family and with other things, so it is with God. We're not good at being thankful. We find it unnatural and hard and we need to practice it. We need to practice it by stopping and thinking and reflecting. A great way to do that, a great way to start uh, Practicing being thankful, I think, is to go home and to pray through the end of this psalm. Pray through those last verses, Psalm 19 to the end. Pray them back to God. Pray them back to God and be thankful. Or another way, maybe a simpler way, if you find that a bit hard, is to go home and pray something like this. Thank you, Father, that Jesus was cut off so that I would never be. Let's uh, pray and put some of that into practice. Heavenly Father, how great uh, is your goodness which you've stored up for those who fear you. Lord, there is a great treasure house in heaven stored up for those who trust and follow Jesus. Lord, it's treasure that we don't deserve because we haven't done anything to deserve it. But it's treasure which you've stored up because you're a great father and a kind father and a God who delights to show mercy a God who delights to pour out blessings. And Lord, often it doesn't feel like that in life because things are hard. And Lord, some of us more than others know how true that is. And yet, Lord, we've been reminded again this morning that our greatest and our deepest fear, which is being separated from you, that greatest fear has been taken away. In our alarm, we said, 
we're cut off. But you are our refuge. Lord, help us to love you with every part of us, with every fibre of our being. Into your hands, O God, we commit our spirits. Amen. We're going to stand and sing a song which reflects more on uh, 